Hi, welcome to the Smarter Coaching Podcast. My name is Sam Cowan, and I'm your host. Thanks for finding us. If you've not already done so, I'd appreciate you subscribing at iTunes or at Stitcher for the Smarter Coaching Podcast. And please leave a review and a rating. That really helped me out. You can also download the podcast and read show notes at my website, smartercoachingllc.com. And from there, you can also email me. The email address is smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter for announcements about upcoming podcasts. My Twitter handle is smartercoaching. Please leave any tips, suggestions that you might have for me. I really greatly appreciate it. So with that said, let me turn you over to today's episode. Joining me on today's podcast is Joe Friel. Um, if you're in the cycling or triathlon world, you've come across Joe Friel's writings at some point in time, either through books such as the Cyclist or the Triathlete's Training Bible, or um, along those lines, the Faster After 50 book, which uh, we talk a little bit about here. Joe has a long history of uh, coaching athletes and also has been very uh, gracious in sharing his coaching philosophy with people and coaching information um, and uh, through his books and also through lecture series as well. Um, Joe and I kind of go back a little ways. I think the first time we ever met in person, we were actually at a uh, Johnny G spinning conference, and we both, I think, kind of felt a little bit out of place, at least I did, uh, coming from a high-performance competitive world into more of a fitness world, even though uh, we both have backgrounds in that area. And uh, we had some good conversations at that conference over dinner. And uh, when I launched the podcast, Joe was uh, one of the people I had on my short list of uh, people I wanted to get on who could help other coaches out and maybe the endurance athletes out there who are coaching themselves. Um, so Joe and I talk a, a lot about uh, training philosophy uh, particularly what happens after we turn 50 as we age and the decrease in performance that we get. Um, this is pretty timely considering the information that's now coming out about uh, the recent 102-year-old cyclist who just set a new hour record. And uh, also for the runners out there, the Ed Whitlock, who is in his 80s and setting marathon records, the fact that he's finishing marathons in his 80s is pretty remarkable to me. So uh, here we go with... Um, Joe and I talking about his writings, his backgrounds, and some of his coaching ideas. Hey, joining me today is the great Joe Friel, uh, probably one of the best known triathlon and cycling coaches in the country. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sam. Thanks very much for, for asking me to be on. I enjoy it. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting with you as well. Um, how about starting out with giving folks a little bit about your athletic and how you athletic background and how you got into coaching? Uh, well, I've always been involved in, in sports since I was a little kid, so it's, I, I don't really think in terms of when I started because it seems like I never was not starting. So uh, that's just been a part of my my life, and uh, I think what got me into coaching was when I was in high school. Um, my track coach, who was also my football coach and my wrestling coach, uh, he and I got along great, and he always kind of relied on me to be somewhat of his assistant, I guess you would say, in a way. Uh-huh. And as I moved up in the grades from freshman to sophomore and so forth up to senior, uh, he kept giving me more and more responsibilities to help out uh, around the edges. 
And so I kind of started being a coach when I was in high school as a teenager. And uh, it sort of stuck. So my, you know, my first job out of, out of college was, uh, was coaching. I coached track and coached football for, uh, for, for a little while. And then uh, uh, after a few years in the Air Force, um, I uh, came back to the U.S., went back to teaching and coaching again. And by that time I was running, this is now the 70s, so that time I was running, so I decided to, uh, to eventually to quit my job as a teacher and uh, to uh, open a running store. And that was 1980. And so people kept coming in asking how to prepare for a marathon or 10K or whatever, and I would give them my adv advice while I sold them a pair of running shoes. Then I bought the bike store next door to my running store, took down the wall between the two stores, and this now I had cyclists coming in and triathletes coming in. This is now about 1984. And same thing, they're asking questions about how to train, and I'm giving the answers. Next thing I knew, I was coaching people, and I discovered I liked that a lot better than, than the retail. So I sold the stores in 1987. By that time, I had a second store up in, in Wyoming also. So I sold the stores in 1987 and um, uh, got a full-time, got a day job so I could pay the bills while I was coaching at night, coaching and the weekends, which was my passion. And five years later, I finally had enough clients that I could uh, quit my day job and just coach full-time. So it's it kind of been a very, very gradual process over the course of my life. But it's a very similar process to what I know cycling coach and triathlon coaches have gone through where you know they get enough clients to where they can kind of quit that day job so that their passion becomes their day job then that's right yep so um i i think your path is a lot like a lot of other folks's path in that way of getting you know your, your hobby that you really are passionate about you got to have a day job to kind of pay for that and then you get enough clientele where you can build it up and, and go from there um, yeah, with that. That's, that's true. I've run into a lot of a lot of coaches who've been through the same sort of uh, process that I went through. Yeah. And then you became an author. How did that come about? Well, that came about kind of in a, in a kind of a, as happenstance. I, uh, in 1990. Three, I think it was. I started writing a column for Velo News Magazine, and uh, they have a sister sister company called Velo Press. And uh, Velo Press liked my columns I was writing for Velo News, so they would ask if I would write a book on training for cycling. And I said, No, I haven't got time. I'm training, you know, 12, 15, 16 hours a week, and I'm coaching all these athletes, etc., etc., etc. Happy to do it, but I just haven't got time. That was 1993, if I recall right. And then in 1994, late 94, I came, I got a virus. Um, I don't know exactly how I got it, but the virus settled into my heart. And when it did, uh, it caused some problems with one of the valves in my heart. It wasn't closing all the way. And I was experiencing some strange side effects, which I didn't know what it was at the time. I talked to my cardiologist. He told me what was going on after some testing. And he suggested I quit training until that those symptoms went away. That turned out to be nine months of actually doing nothing. And so as soon as I realized I was going to have some time, I contacted, went back to Velo Press uh, Publishing House again, 
And he said, hey, all of a sudden I've got a lot of time, I'll try writing that book. So I wrote the Cyclist Turning Bible, which is the first book I ever wrote. I thought it might sell maybe a couple thousand copies in seven or eight years and that'd be the end of it. But for me, the most important thing was I was gonna be able to defend and explain how I coach athletes. It would be a way of testing myself to see if I really understood what I was doing. And lo and behold, the first month, the book sold something like 5,000 copies, and it's just been, it's gone crazy ever since then. So um, it, it did far better than I ever thought it was, was going to do, but I quite honestly didn't write it for anybody else other than me. I just wrote it to make sure I understand I knew what I, what I was doing. And by, and by the way, I'm now rewriting that book. I started on it uh, last fall. Uh, I've decided after three um, edits that it was really gotten to the point that I couldn't just edit it anymore. I need to go back and make significant changes. So I just threw away the entire manuscript, started with a blank piece of paper, and so I'm now rewriting the entire book. That's an amazing, I mean, writing a book is just such an amazing undertaking. I've known several people who have who've undertaken that successfully, and I've thought about it, and I've I dove into it once or twice and decided this is just too much work. It is love. Um, and uh, with that, so I, I commend those of you out there who are who are writing books. Um, another book you wrote was Faster After 50, yeah. which goes into why we slow down as we age. Uh, can I give folks a little bit of a Reader's Digest version of Faster After 50? Yeah. Um that book came about just in, in kind of a, as a reference point for everybody. Came about because I was approaching my my seventieth um, birthday, and back in the uh, late nine late nineties, I think it was about nineteen ninety seven. I wrote a book called Cycling uh, Past Fifty, and in that book, after reading the research, which there wasn't much of at the time on on uh, aging athletes, it uh, seemed that the the issue for for athletes as you get older is that things slow down, but by age 70, things slow down at a very rapid rate. And so I, when I was 69, I'm thinking about this all the time, but in the coming year, things are liable to kind of go downhill really fast as far as my, my physical performance. So uh, I better start reading the research again to see what's happened. That was back in about 19, or 20, uh, 20, what, 2013. I started reading that research again, but now I discovered the research had had, had really increased tremendously since the late 90s. There was now a gigantic amount of research on the topic of aging athletes. So I spent better part of a year reading research every day on aging and uh, came to understand quite a bit about it and would occasionally write a, a blog post about it. And, and uh, there was lots of questions and conversations that went on in my blog regarding uh, aging. And so I realized that there's there's people out there who really don't know anything about this, kind of like me. So I really ought to write a book on aging athletes. And so my book Fast After Fifty came out on on that topic. And uh, uh, basically, most books that have been written for aging athletes are kind of like what I would call cheerleader books. They're kind of like along the lines of "You can do it. Just give it a hard try," you know, sort of thing. It's kind of like just trying to cheer you on to make sure you can get through the. The process of trying to become marginally fit. And I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write a book for athletes who are like myself, serious about training, really wanted to perform still at a high level, and uh, how we could deal with the ravages of age to keep these things at bay so that we could continue to perform at a high level. And so the book grew out of that and all the research I was reading. 
In bo- the bottom line of the book, if I had to put it all into synopsis, is that there are there are, there are several things that cause us to uh, slow down with aging. Probably the three most significant are um, um, a loss of aerobic capacity or VO2 max. It it declines as we age. Interestingly enough, it doesn't decline as as fast if you're an athlete as it does for the general population. And as I read the research, it became very obvious that among those athletes who continued to exercise, those who did high intensity training intervals and such uh, had a slower, a, a lower or slower decline in their VO2 max than the athletes who just did, did long, slow distance. So that's one of the points I discuss quite a bit in the book: is intervals, high intensity training, the benefits of doing it, how to do it if you've not been doing it for some time, like many aging athletes have, may have stopped by by the time they're in their 50s or even 60s. So that's one of the issues I talk about. The second is uh, muscle mass, which is lost over the course of uh, one's lifetime as we get older. Uh, a lot of this comes down to uh, uh, hormones and and lifestyles and such and such. But uh, there definitely is a loss of muscle mass, and so I go into that. What's causing this? How can it be? How can the loss of muscle mass be slowed down or even reversed? Uh, which brought me to the topic then of doing high-intensity training again, only now using resistance training of some sort. And I talk about very various uh, uh, possibilities for doing that, from weight room to uh, sport-specific types of uh, resistance training. So that's the second major point of the book. And the third is kind of related in a way. It's that as we get older, not only are we losing muscle mass, but we tend to be gaining fat. And that fat really has little advantage for for being a better endurance athlete. And so I go into why that happens. Again, it's kind of a hormonal issue that's that's going on with our with our bodies, and how that can be um, reversed also through various things such as um, the type of exercise we do, the the lifestyle we we live, we live, um, the foods we eat, and a number of things like that. So those are the three main topics in the book, really. Yeah, it's, you know, there's obviously going to be a decline in VO2 max. Even if you stay very active, it just right. happens. Heart rate max goes down, and that's a prompt component of uh, a VO2 max. But we also have seen studies where muscle mass in men in their 70s, you know, on a, on a very standard strength training program, they've increased muscle mass, which I, I think at one time was thought there's no way these old guys right. can put on muscle mass at that age, but yet yeah. we've shown that they can. Yeah, which is really good. So what would, and I think you, you've hit on this, but I want to elaborate a little bit. You've hit on the, what you see as the biggest trend is as people age is that they drop the higher intensity training. And I, I, I know that for myself. I'm past 50 now and uh, many years ago now, about five or six years ago, kind of got less competitive. And so my runs just became, I went out to run because I enjoyed running. I knew it's healthy for me and everything else. But I wasn't so interested in doing VO2 max interval sessions and lactate threshold interval sessions. And it sounds like that's an area that you're identifying as one of the major reasons that we saw Yeah, that. Sam, I saw that happen to me too. I realized as I was reading the research back about, uh, it's been three years ago now, that um, I was seeing that change take place in my training. I was shifting toward more long, slow distance and away from the interval training I'd I had done as a younger athlete, and it hadn't been like it was a gigantic change that had taken place. It was just kind of a very gradual shift over the course of many years with uh, my training becoming 
more long, slow distance or more endurance oriented as opposed to intensity oriented. And so uh, I began to make changes there, and lo and behold, I began to see changes in, in my numbers, things to indicate my performance uh, changed positively. And so, so I was seeing this, the thing happen to me that I was um, uh, writing about in my book, and it just became um, my, it was a study of one, basically. You know, I was the subject, and I was watching what happened to me. And it corresponded with what I was reading about in the research. So I guess it kind of, uh, they go together. And so the book is just trying to make it, is trying to make that point that this is, this is the direction that will, that we can go that will help us to be, maintain our performance as we get older in life. Well, I think one of those things too, I, I coach some adult business runners and, and, um, they're at right now, I don't have anybody who is over 50, um, Right. And one of the things I've I've thought about in here is trying to encourage my older friends who are in their late 40s and early 50s and on is so many of them have have graduated to the or have moved to the marathon or even ultra distance stuff is, you know, every now and then go out and do that 5K that gets that intensity going. And I think is really good training for the longer distances as well and maybe helps to keep that fitness level up. But most of them tend to have the idea that those five yeah. Ks are hard. I mean, you know, you, you know, it, it's it's maybe twenty ish minutes or maybe a little bit more, but it's a hard twenty minutes. And I think uh, a lot of people don't just don't enjoy that as much. Yeah, anymore. you're right. So the psychology sure. of that may be part of it. Too. Yeah, there's an interesting yeah. study, um, um, a book that yeah. Jim Vance and I uh, edited, uh, came out a couple of years ago. It's called Triathlon Science. And one of the authors, we had several authors, mostly PhDs, who were writing chapters in the book. And one of them cited a very interesting study in which they had compared the, the bike splits of, of Ironman, and I think it was 60-plus age group, with the winners of those same Ironman races to see what percentage, um, how much slower were the uh, were the age group athletes, uh, 60 plus athletes compared with the, with the overall winners on their bike splits for the Ironman. And then they did exactly the same thing for uh, uh, national level, like international um, ITU races for the Olympic distance and um, compared that. And what they found was that the, in the, at the Olympic distance, the age, the, the older athletes raced at a higher percentage of the winner's time then did the Ironman athletes. And the conclusion they drew from that was that these people doing the Olympic distance races were doing more high intensity and therefore maintained their fitness better than the athletes who were simply going out and putting in five and six hour rides. And so that again kind of confirms that, but there's a bit of interpretation going on there, but it seems to confirm the very same point I was making earlier. Yeah, exactly. Um, in your book, The Faster After 50, you describe some field tests that uh, folks can use. Can you elaborate on the field test and how people can utilize those? The information yeah, there are a couple of them. One of them, um, let's say we're talking here now about uh, on the bike. If an athlete has a power meter on the bike, um, they can compare. They they can compare their heart rates with their with their power. Uh, I'm going to all the details of that. It's explained on my website, my blog, um, joefrielsblog.com. 
But by going there, you can search for something called efficiency factor, and it talks about a very simple test you can do where you just put in a, a nice, easy, uh, maybe not real easy, but steady, moderate effort ride, zone two sort of ride. And when you get done with that steady effort, which may last an hour, you compare your normalized power with your, your average heart rate for that hour. And that's and by, and when you use the word compare, mathematics means divide by. So it's normalized power divided by average heart rate gives you a number, which is usually going to be something like one point something. And what should happen over that over time is that number should rise. Um, the same thing can be done for a runner with a uh, speed and distance device, um, uh, you know, a uh, basically a garment on your wrist. And uh, by looking at your your normalized pace over a certain uh, duration, like for example, a half hour or whatever, divided by average heart rate for that same duration, uh, you've got a, a number that is reflective of your of your aerobic efficiency at the time. And as your aerobic efficiency improves, you become more aerobically fit, uh, that number will rise. And so that's, that's a simple test that can be done. And, and there are many, many other tests that can be done also to determine one's uh, level of fitness. Uh, for example, functional threshold power test is a very common test in cycling, which is basically a 20-minute all-out effort. And um, what you simply look to see is what was the, what was the average power for that 20 minutes. That's a good indication of one's anaerobic or lactate threshold uh, power output. And your heart rate for the very same period of time is also reflective of that. So all you do is you take your, your power or your and, and or your heart rate for that same period of time, that 20 minutes, subtract 5%, and you've got a number which is indicative of what you could probably do at around your, your anaerobic or lactate threshold. Same thing can be done for running, 20-minute uh, run, very hard effort like a race. Uh, you take average speed for that 20 minutes divided by average, or rather uh, for that uh, for that period of time, minus 5% tells you your your uh, lactate or anaerobic threshold, a pretty good estimate for it. In other words, and also your heart rate for that one too. So there, those are simple tests, and there, and there are many, many other tests that can be done in the field without having to go to a laboratory to find out where you, how you're doing right now as far as your fitness is concerned. Right. Yeah, very much so. I, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the lab. Yeah, very much so. I, I've spent a lot of time in the lab. I, you know, folks know that. And yet I find field tests are at very effective for doing practical training with people and plus you, you know you just don't have access to lab and equipment and stuff or at least not yeah. anything that is uh, cost effective anyway with that um, your your books have I think as particularly the early ones probably helped a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, understand this idea of periodization Sure. Can you explain what you yeah, mean what by I the mean term by and, and by the way, there's this can become a rather complicated topic, which I think is far beyond what's necessary. Um, what I <laughs> all I do all, all I right. when somebody asks me what's periodization, I, I simply say it's uh, it's the uh, um, division of the, of the season into periods of time, with each period gradually becoming increasingly like the race that you're training for. So, for example, if you're training for um, a triathlon, an Olympic distance triathlon, what you would like to do is as the season progresses, you have various periods of time that you train in. The periods may be three or four or five or six or seven or eight weeks long. And during each of those periods, you gradually um, make this, this shift um, between periods. 
uh, toward making your workouts more like the race. So by the time you finally get to the last period before the race, you're doing workouts which are very much, very much like the race. And so when it comes time to do the race on, on race day, you're, you're prepared for it. So it's really not as complex as it sounds like. It's just, it's just a matter of making your workouts increasingly like the race. Yeah, I, I think sometimes people get, and I teach a class on periodization and use uh, Mampa and Greg Hoff's book on it. And, and sometimes people open that up and look at it. And it, some of the graphs in there are incredibly complex. And I point out to my students that most of you are never going to need to get this complex with an athlete that you coach or that you train. And sometimes they go into such great detail in those. And I keep trying to tell people, just think about how you're going to plan, plan and structure the training and, like you said, getting ready for events and moving towards that goal and maybe don't get so overwhelmed by the fancy names that go along with it, which sometimes you're right. I, I think tend to confuse the picture more than clarify it. On that. Yeah. Um, you've been around the, both cycling and triathlon for a while. Um, what, what have you seen in changes as far as coaching cyclists and triathletes? Yeah, quite a bit. In, your, um, in, your time in fact, frame, this, in this your time kind of talking about this periodization concept. When, when I first, uh, you know, if you really look back at the history of periodization, I've, 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 I'm a, I'm a, one of my undergraduate majors. I had two majors. One of them was history. To this day, I still enjoy reading the history of you know, really anything at all. And so I've done a lot of research on on the research, on, on the history of periodization. How, how did all this come about? And uh, um, uh, I, at one time, I, I called uh, you know one of my closest friends. Really, was Tudor Bampa. I knew, had known him for a few years, and we had spent a lot of time talking about training. He's considered one of the people who has been influential in that field. And so um, when I first started training, which was in the 1970s. Uh, nobody ever used the word periodization. It was really unheard of in Western civilization. In fact, it wasn't until 1972 that we have the first record of a, an Olympic elite athlete training using uh, periodization, a Western athlete. Up until that time, it had been uh, Western or Eastern Bloc, uh, Soviet Bloc countries that were using periodization. But in 1972, um, the first athlete that we know of began to train that very same way he had learned from his Eastern uh, uh, competitors, how they trained, and so began to apply the concepts, and it worked quite well for him. And the next thing you know, more athletes are doing it. So by the time I started training, I'd never even heard the word periodization, but I realized I need to do exactly what I said before, which is to make my training more like the race. So I started designing training plans for myself that would do that without ever thinking about any concepts that had to do with science or anything else. It was just making like the race. And, and by the time I wrote my first book in 1995, uh, periodization really wasn't all that known, well known beyond coaches and elite athletes. Uh, most athletes had no idea what periodization was. The term just wasn't used. Uh, it's not like today where you could open, you know, Google and find out anything you want about any topic that just wasn't available back in those days. So, um, so when I wrote that book, I I tried to explain periodization in a way that I thought what athletes would be able to to um, understand and adopt it, and uh, and I did that, and that became really the the basis of both of those all all of my early books, uh, the Turning Bible books 
were written with that in mind. That was the whole point of the book, was to talk about periodization. And uh, so now as I'm, I'm rewriting the Cyclist Training Bible, and by the way, I just finished uh, last year writing the, uh, rewriting the Triathletes Training Bible, I had to talk about, I wanted to talk about periodization again, but now we're, we're some 20 years beyond where I was when I first wrote about periodization, where athletes were at that time. And now it seems everybody knows what periodization is. It's not like it's a big mystery anymore. Everybody knows what it is and has, is pretty, pretty well versed on the, on the concept. And so now when I wrote these books, I talked about all the ways you could periodize. How, how can you make the churning fit your needs even better with all sorts of different ways of, of, uh, using your time more effectively. And so that's something I've seen happen with athletes over the course of the last 20 years. They've become much smarter when it comes to uh, uh, preparing to train by in, in terms of periodization. But not only that, but also in terms of the science of training. Back when I started doing this stuff back in the 70s, there was never any thought of science. It was just, you just go out and you just, you ran fast sometimes and you ran slow sometimes. And if you're on the bike, you did the same thing. You ride fast, you ride slow. And that was about it. There's never really any any great thought that went into it. It was just kind of what we did. And over the course of the, gosh, 30-some years now, um, we've become really very, uh, very scientific with training, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad, I'm afraid. Um, and, but basically, athletes now want to know what What's the reason why I'm doing this? It's not just let's go out and do something because that's the way my coach used to do it, which is what I went through. It's why do this because what's the period? Of, what's the uh, what's the research showing us is the reason why I should do this? And so now we've the focus of training has changed dramatically since when I was just getting started in this myself back in the seventies. It has. I, um, you were talking there that um, periodization is becoming much more well known, and and also much more scientific. I think sometimes coaches with and we get all this data now. We get them from power meters. We get them from GPS devices, heart rate monitors, these things. And I think sometimes we need to always remember there's a human being on the other side of that that's providing those numbers to us and. We can't get too caught up in what the numbers are saying, and we got to remember there's a person on there whose motive, whose motivation we got to keep an eye on, whose recovery we have to keep an eye on, who has. For most of us, aren't dealing with elite athletes. They they've got other commitments in their life that we have to take into account, and it, it can't just be a black box sort of situation. Which I find inexperienced coaches tend to, especially the ones who like the numbers. I find yeah, sometimes exactly they right. tend to maybe I, focus I, on I that agree. a little bit too much. Uh, I think it's, you know, uh, what do you do if your, your battery yeah. dies when you're in yeah. the middle of a race? Um, you stop. <laughs> what do you do? You know, and that's we, The bottom line is every athlete <laughs> needs to be able to monitor their body to know how, well, it's, how it's working right now and what, you know, how they're yeah. doing, basically. Uh, it's kind of an RPE sort of a concept. So that, that's, that's the bottom line always. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of RPE, even with all the technology right. we have. I still want to know from my athletes, how did it feel? How did that work out feel to you? And um, Agreed. that can sometimes give great insight um, with that. Um, you know, it, it's funny, we're, 
we're, we're talking about the aging athletes and there have been, you know, there's a recent paper that has popped up about a 102 year old cyclist who just, uh, you know, did the hour record. And also there's Ed Whitlock. So maybe we're going to get some more, um, maybe we're going to get some more information coming out Still about there? these older athletes as quite honestly, people are staying in the sport longer and are, are yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, okay. I, I, I was talking there while you had dropped out um, for a second, so I was buying some time um, for folks. Yeah, I was just talking about how, you know, yeah, we are right, getting yeah. older athletes now, the Ed Whitlocks, and I believe his name is Marchand, if I remember is the cyclist name. And so hopefully we'll be able to get exactly data right. on older athletes because we now have older athletes to get I agree. data on. Um, so it, it mm-hmm. could be a fascinating next few years sure. on this. All right, uh, a couple of wrap-up things here for you. Yeah, a couple uh, of wrap-up things. What is, what's the best piece of advice? <laughs> so many, it's hard, to, it's hard to go back and say, you know, which was which was the best. Probably, and this may not, re- this doesn't relate to, uh, probably the best advice I ever got was from my dad. My dad wasn't very good at giving good advice, but one time he gave yeah. me advice, which uh, made a big difference in my life. Could have, it could have made a difference in me being I'm still alive was that uh, I was about to get drafted into the Air Force, or I'm sorry, drafted into the Army back in uh, 1966 after I graduated from college, Vietnam War era. And um, my dad said, join the Air Force. Uh, you'll sleep between white sheets even if you're in a war. And uh, so I took his advice. I joined the Air Force, and lo and behold, I'm in Vietnam sleeping between white sheets every night. Whereas my buddies, <laughs> friends I knew who were in the army from my college, you know, my college classmates, they were sleeping in in swamps at night. Um, so that was the best advice I ever got in my entire life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's great advice. That's good advice right there. Um, Question for you: If you could sit down and have dinner and maybe a couple of beers with a, oh, uh, any individuals, um, living you know the guy. Dead, I would probably would most like to have a conversation with is Arthur Lydiard. Um, he kind of he kind of takes me back to uh, the early days when I, when I was just running back in the early oh, yes. seventies. I read everything I could find from Arthur Lydiard, um, everything, uh, interviews. Uh, magazines, books, anything I could f- get my hands on that talked about Arthur Lydiard, I read it. And to this day, I still think back in terms of the things he came up with at a time when nobody else really knew what was going on at all. He just figured them out for himself with his own tra- own training, going out for different types of runs and seeing how that affected his performance. And so he would be number one on my list, I think, somebody who could sure. really talk to that uh, – uh, had a big impact on not only the sport, but also on me personally. Um, he's still got a lot of things I've learned from him that are very, very valuable to my way of seeing the world, world of training. Then there's, uh, gosh, if I look at people today, um, Tim Noakes. Tim Noakes has been around the sports, especially running, for a long, long time. And uh, I've, had, I've actually had dinner with him before. And I enjoyed talking with him. It was, it was great fun because yes. um, uh, I could ask him questions about things that, that he has studied. Another guy that's still around today, which is kind of in the same category as Dave Costell. He's a Ph.D. sports science from uh, uh, Ball State University in Indiana. I went to Ball State for one semester a long time ago. Oh, yeah. 
and uh, he's one of those kind of guys that just he's he's not only a tremendous tremendously knowledgeable when it comes to sport. He is also a tremendous athlete himself. He's, I, I've forgotten how many records he now holds, but he holds like every age group swim record for the last for 20 years or something like that for almost every right. distance. Forgotten all this. He's just tremendous numbers. He swims, he swam, he swam faster when he was in his sixties than he did when he was swimming competitively yeah. in college, uh, which tells you he learned a hell, he learned a hell of a lot after he graduated from college back in, I think probably the 1950s is when he graduated. Wow. And uh, continues to be a tr- tremendous athlete to this day. So he's got one of those kind of guys as both the athlete and the uh, the knowledgeable person. And then there's so many others. You know, guys, you can go down the line, but those those are kind of the, the big three. Well, you know, if you have if you have dinner with notes, most sure. of them are banting dinner. <laughs> You're right. Well, you know, if you have if sure. you have dinner with notes, you know it's going to be a banting dinner, right? There's not going to be much carbohydrate served at that dinner. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sure. a couple places. Great. One is my blog. Right. Uh, I've had a blog now since 2007. And media. most everything I write about in my books, I discuss there first. It's kind of like a proving ground for my, my books. And that's uh, joefreelsblog.com. So J-O-E-F-R-I-E-L-S-B-L-O-G.com. And the other is on Twitter uh, at... J Friel, J F R I E L. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, it's funny. I just heard an interview with a woman who who wrote a book, and um, she didn't. She used Twitter as her editor, so she'd throw out an idea or a joke or something funny, and then she'd hear back from people on Twitter. And that was her editing part of it, That's much like idea. using a blog for this, but it was very instantaneous. I, I found that to be just a fascinating way to try to approach writing a book uh, and doing that. So, yeah, with that. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for your time and sharing your ideas. And I, I really encourage folks who are uh, over 50 and even approaching 50 to, to get faster after 50 so you can prepare uh, ahead of time. I waited till I was about 51, I think, to read it a couple of years ago now. And um, so I kind of wish I had started a little bit earlier. And maybe Thanks I very much, Sam. I enjoyed so it. It's always, always fun to that. talk to you. And, and hope um, to get you on again um, to talk about I'll future projects. We'll talking to you again sometime. Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye. Yep. Yep. Have a great rest of your day, Joe. Hey, thanks everyone for joining me for this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, again, reach out to me with feedback, either through Twitter, Smarter Coaching, my email address, smartercoachingllc at gmail.com, or via the website, smartercoachingllc.com. Also, if you've not done so, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, leave some comments there, but uh, give me some feedback on how I'm doing. I'm really interested and looking to improve the podcast. Hope you have a great week and hope to catch you back here on the Smarter Coaching Podcast on our next episode.